Welcome to Tribes Podcast. Hey, we just want to say thank you for making this message a part of your week. Our prayer is that these messages will inspire you to make the name of Jesus famous in your life and to the uttermost bounds of the earth. If you're ever in Jackson Hole, we'd love for you to visit our tribe fam in person. To learn more about us, you can find us online or at Facebook by searching tribejh.com. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, would you turn to the book of Galatians? And if you will remember where we've been, good morning. If you remember where we've been the last couple of weeks, we were, we were talking uh, about a particular passage and subject, and we sort of touched on Galatians chapter 4, and then we skipped right on and, and moved on ahead. And then that week, I felt like the Lord said, hey, let's take a little bit of time. It's a, imagine driving do, through the Inner Park Loop uh, in Grand Teton National Park, if you're familiar with the park. Imagine driving through the inner park loop at 85 miles an hour. Like, I mean, you're going to see the Tetons, but sort of barely. And you'll probably hit an elk and maybe a few tourists. But the way to see the park on the, on the inner park loop road is to drive nice and slow, visit the turnouts. And I feel like the Lord said, hey, on this particular passage in Galatians chapter 4, I want you to like slow down a little bit, and I want you to take this pull out of Galatians chapter 4. If you have been walking with the Lord for any amount of time, you've probably are familiar with the book of Galatians. You've probably read Galatians chapter 4 before. So in, in a sense, this might feel a little bit like review for you. But my prayer and our, our prayer team has been praying this for you this week, is that today, as we go into week two of what we're going to talk about, and this is my, my goal is to, to wrap this up so we can move on with all the other great things that the Lord has for us to talk about. My, my goal is that somehow, some way, you will hear the things that we're going to talk about with fresh ears almost as if it's brand new. Truths that you have heard before and that you have familiarity with, but they would just connect with you at a deeper level. So, so Lord, that's actually my prayer this morning, is that as we get into your word in Galatians chapter four, not that we would learn something new, but that we would, we would get a new revelation of a passage that is familiar to many of us. And for some of you, perhaps watching the live stream or here in, uh, as a part of this service in 3D, you, you're, this, this might be new for you. So here's what I'd like to do. We're going to read Galatians chapter 4, and we're going to go just verse 1 through 6. So when we get to verse 6, we'll, we'll call a pause there, and we're going to talk about and unpack some of these things. So... If you have your Bible open to Galatians chapter 4, would somebody start reading in verse 1 and then read a verse or two and then hand it off and we'll get all the way to verse 6. Whoever's got it, you can go for it. Oh, yes. And, and if you read, why don't we just start right there? And whoever reads, if you could just read into the mic for live stream folks. Think of it this way. If a father dies and leaves an inheritance for his young children, 
those children are not much better off than slaves until they grow up, even though they actually own everything their father had. They have to obey their guardians until they reach whatever age their father set. And that's the way it was with us before Christ came. We were like children. We were slaves to the basic spiritual principles of this world. Hmm. You're doing so good. Just go ahead and rip all the way through. And I think I said six. Is six? But... Verse 7 is really good, too, so we'll read verse 7. <laughs> okay, starting back up in verse 4. But when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law, so that he could adopt us as his very own children. And because we are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father, now you are no longer a slave, but God's own child. And since you are his child, God has made you his heir. Ooh. The Lord bless the reading of his word this morning. Would you go to that next slide, Christian? <clears throat> so here's how my brain grabbed a hold of this passage. I kind of saw like a, a chart in my mind. Maybe, maybe it's part of the teacher in me. For those of you who connect with God's word through imagery and imagination and storytelling, um, great. That, this, you, you have to shift gears a little bit. For those of you who like uh, charts and who like it linearly and who have that that literal learning mindset then this this is really for you okay because I've got a chart anybody remember when Ross Perot was running for president and he always say you look at my chart here are you just are you just appeasing me or do you really remember that okay okay especially on Saturday Night Live yeah I, I kind of got it you look at my chart here all right, anyways, <clears throat> just smash that like button on the live stream if you get that joke. <clears throat> last week, last week, I'll do, I'll do a lightning fast review. Um, that passage that we just looked at, Paul is talking about the difference between slavery and sonship. And I had a visual aid here. And I have these metal handcuffs here that, that represent slavery. Okay, and Paul is talking about the difference between slavery and then keys that are handed to you, like keys of a car, keys of a house. If I give you a key to our house, it's completely worthless because our doors are unlocked anyways. It's Jackson, come on. <laughs> but if I were to give you a key to, to our house, that's in essence the same as saying welcome into our house, welcome, be a part of our family. You have unrestricted 24-7 access to our house and to our family. You are a part of our family. So we're going to be talking about the difference between slavery and sonship. And there are, there are four different conditions and if you look on the left, you'll see these are things that Paul touches on in this passage. He touches on the condition of ownership, salvation, redemption, 
our position and then the deep cry of our heart. And he compares and contrasts what is that like under slavery and what is that like under adoption and sonship. And if you're still a little bit like, well, now, now slavery, like, wasn't that abolished in the United States with the Emancipation Proclamation and slavery? I'm not quite following you. As we continue along, you will, you'll become more clear on where I'm coming from with this idea of slavery. Paul uses the metaphor of guardianship. Imagine a prince that is going to be king, but while he is in immaturity, number one, he doesn't know that he is heir to the throne. Number two, he has to have um, like a, a, a nanny or uh, a manny or a, a guardian, a custodian, uh, a schoolmarm, uh, somebody that, that keeps them under tight lock and key. Now, a guardian does it for their benefit and for their good. But as, as Ben talked about, and as you are aware, because of what is revealed in Scripture and because of the world that we live in, there is an enemy of our soul. And he goes by lots of different names, Beelzebub, the devil, Satan. Um, most typically, we refer to him around here as the enemy, not that we refer to him a bunch at all, but, but we do have an adversary. I think, quick side note, I think that, that that very well could be the single greatest revelation that a lost person needs to help them along in their journey of getting saved. Wait a second. There is an enemy that is out to steal, to kill, and to destroy me my health, my joy, my sanity, my peace of mind, my fine, every single possible aspect. Why, what have you done to deserve the wrath of this enemy? You've heard me say it before. It's like some Carrie Underwood song where uh, uh, the, the boyfriend or something cheats on her and so she can't get at him. So she goes after his pickup truck. You know, and scratches it and, you know, vandalizes it. Uh, woof, don't mess with Carrie Underwood, y'all. In a similar way, in a similar way, the, the Bible names an angel in heaven as Lucifer. And he was a worship leader. He was close to the throne of God in the, in the cosmic history of the universe. But pride entered into his heart. And Lucifer was like, why is all this credit and glory going to God? Like, I mean, look at me. I'm kind of like a big deal myself. And pride entered into, entered into his heart, the Bible tells us. And God was like, nope, I'm not going to share my glory with anyone or anything else. You're out. Lucifer fell. He rages against God because of his pride and rebellion. But he can't get at God. So like in that Carrie Underwood song, he's going to go after the next best thing that he can to try to inflict vengeance, revenge. There's a V word that I'm missing. Vindiction. He wants to, he wants to take it out. If he can't get at God, he wants to take it out on God's creation. 
He's got a vendetta. Uh, and so, and so I think there are a lot of people that bounce along in this world that think the devil is not much different than the boogeyman or Easter bunny. Um, uh, he's just a construct of human psyche that parents and authorities and religions and government, uh, authoritarian institutions use to keep people afraid and under control. You probably were taught that or picked up on that. Maybe even some of you have adopted that. Like, ah, I mean, it's just like like the devil. Ooh. Like, I've never seen anybody, like, as described in O Brother Huarauto, the great Satan himself is a scaly creature with uh, pointy, pointy ears and a bifurcated tongue. I don't know if you remember that part. Uh, but they're like, I mean, you know, I haven't seen a guy in a red cape and a pitchfork running around. Like, come on. That's like, that's what parents use and religions use to scare people and keep them under control. I, I reject that. You can reject the notion of the enemy all you want. And that does not change the reality of his existence and his literal stated goal for our life is to steal from us, to kill, and to destroy. And if you've ever found yourself in a ditch in life, maybe a physical one, definitely an emotional one or spiritual one, where you're like, what was that? What was that? That's the work, perhaps in partnership with your choices, but that's the work of the enemy. And when you realize that he is real, when you realize that his intents for us are harm and destruction and evil, something begins to wake up inside of you. Because you realize what, and this is still review, <laughs> That slavery under the law, when it comes to the condition of ownership, that you are, according to the Bible, what Paul just says, you are a slave to sin. You, please. While you're saying that, I think that, I remember thinking when I was new to like God stuff, why in the world would God allow that pride? Like if he's almighty and he's all, all powerful, like he created that angel lucifer why would he and kind of think of that as a fault on god but the more you get to know him and his nature and character he even wanted the angels to choose to worship him like while we're talking about sonship he didn't want slaves he wanted sonship even with the angels around his throne who are singing holy 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 they had a choice to worship him just like we do i just think that that it puts things into so much perspective of his, his just his loving kindness for us. Mm. His, his character is pretty amazing. That mm. that is a facet of his character. Mm-hmm. So according to what the Bible says, and from all of us, all of us are human in here. So we have this. Had <laughs> to check. We all have this shared common experience of humanity, that. For those of you who have invited Jesus into your heart, made him the leader of your life, you have been 
saved. Saved from what? Saved from the penalty and the consequences of sin. Before you're saved, you're lost. But here's the cool thing about being lost that we talked about several weeks ago. Something being lost implies that it has an owner. Your rightful owner is God. Until you transfer ownership, it's not like you're a free moral agent. As some popular philosophies teach, that morally you have a tabula rasa, which is Latin for clean slate. And that either by product of your upbringing or your environment, that, that you can like turn or lean towards good or evil. That just, uh, any professor that spouts that off, just, that just goes to show me that they've never had kids or been around kids or raised kids or ever <laughs> babysat little children. You don't have to teach a child to lie. Cookie crumbs on their face, chocolate chips on their fingers. Did you take that cookie from the cookie jar? Mm-mm. Really? There were five, now there are four. Mm-mm. Where do you think it went? And they always point at their little brother. He did it, and he's like asleep over there. <laughs> you don't have to teach a child or a person to lie, to be selfish. We do that stuff naturally really, really good. That makes us a slave to sin. So under the condition of sonship, we're no longer a slave to sin, but we become a slave to righteousness. So our our address our country of residence, if you will, changes from the country of sin and death to the country of life and peace and righteousness. So we become a slave to righteousness. We no longer have to obey our sinful nature. And even, so this is another great like revelation point that all believers need to grab a hold of, is that let's say, let's say, that uh, before a person got saved, that they just could not help but to steal. Shoplift or whatever it is. They just, they had a real problem with stealing. I had a friend in high school that did it for the adrenaline rush. And we would go, you know, to different stores around town and, and he would come out and be like, look, I got a pair of ski gloves. And I was like, oh my gosh. That's just, just so foreign to me. Um, and, and let's say that a person uh, was a stealer. They were a thief. Steal, steal, steal all the time. They get saved. Wow, I'm no longer a slave to sin. I'm a slave to righteousness. I want to live a life that pleases and honors you, Lord. But they have that temptation to steal again because their desires and the, the rut of their trajectory of their life hasn't yet been changed. Remember, when you get born again, you get a brand new heart. But it, the Bible says in Romans 12 too, don't be conformed any longer to that rut that you were in. Instead, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So our mind has to get renewed. So when a person gets saved and they were a stealer, yeah, I'll stick with that. It stands out in your brain better than thief. They're still going to have the same temptation to steal. But here's what's awesome. Before you were saved and you had a temptation to steal, you almost couldn't help it, even though you felt awful later. You, you, couldn't, you couldn't help it because you were a slave to that. 
But then, when you get adopted and become a son, here's the most amazing thing. The Bible says to reckon yourselves dead to sin. That, sl- that sin is no longer your master. So you have the same temptation. I should steal. Like, I could take that. And all oh, that dirty devil, he will lie to you in the first person. There's so much good stuff coming from this part of the room right now, guys. You know the enemy will lie to you in the first person. Let's say you had a problem as a stealer. You get saved. The devil will not whisper to you, you should steal that. If you ever had that thought, you should steal that, you would go like this. What, 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 who said that? But the devil will love to lie to you in the first person. I could take that. And when have you ever doubted your, yourself and your own thoughts? Like, wait, it's me. I've been living with me my whole life. Sometimes I'm astounded at some of the things I do. What were you thinking, Brian? But I, I, most people have a sound mind that they can trust their own mind. So when the devil says to you, you could take, uh, I could take that, we just kind of adopt it as our own. But here's the idea when it comes to ownership, that we're a slave to righteousness. When that thought pops up, I could take that. We arrest that. 2 Corinthians 10, 13, we use our powerful God tools for for tearing down barriers erected against the knowledge of God and bringing every loose thought, emotion, and impulse into a life subject to Jesus. Wait a minute, we arrest that thought. Wait a minute, first of all, I recognize that that thought is not my own. I reject that, that temptation, and then I replace it with the truth. I'm no longer a slave to sin. I'm a slave to righteousness. Then we rejoice. Thank you, Lord, that I don't have to submit to that temptation. And you turn and go the other way. What was that, 2 Corinthians 1? Oh, you're going to... 10.13 is what I said. Great. Now... I just, it just rolled off my tongue so fast. Uh, I'm about to get checked. 10-5? That's that's just like that picture I saw for Joy. If Joy didn't believe that she was set free from fear and fear presented itself, she would think, oh, great. I guess I haven't beat that. I guess I haven't beat that thing. But when that fear comes and she stands on the fact that she's been set free from it, that she's no longer a slave to that, to defeat that moment of temptation is so much greater. Because you're like, oh, yeah, I've been set free from that. Wait a minute. Why would I grab a hold of that? Right. Or as yeah. Brian says, grab a hold of that. Yeah, yeah, for you Texans. <laughs> Let's get a, a, a quick mini testimony. Let's get really practical for us guys. Well, for, for all of us people, but especially for us guys. When it comes to, when it comes to temptation on the Internet, the, 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 the thought bubbles up. I could fill in the fill in the blank with the with the internet. And before a person gets saved, they can they're like a like like a chain around your neck just being drugged back to that same place. You you can't help it. But here's what's so awesome about when a person becomes a Christian, you no longer have to obey that. So so for me, I was a slave to that. And then God set me free. And then the battle became 
to reckon myself dead to that sin and temptation. So that when that temptation came, and it's not like that was done, and I'm like, ah, I never had to worry about that temptation ever again. That, that's not reality. But here's what's really cool. When the temptation comes, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. No temptation has seized you but that which is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will provide a way out from underneath it so you can stand up. Wait, that's not my master anymore. That desire, that, that temptation, that's actually not coming from me. I'm a new creation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Go the other way. It might even help if you make that noise. Next time you need to resist temptation, let's all practice resisting temptation. It's good. Or as Joey would say, Babu. <laughs> We're still in review. Come on, Brian. Let's look at the second condition, salvation and redemption. We're unable to redeem slash earn our right standing by ourselves. Now, if you have come from a tradition or a denomination of church that, uh, that is Calvinist, number one, you probably know all about where I'm about to go. You can know that you have not grown up in a Calvinist church when I say Calvinist and you're like, huh? Right. <laughs> then you didn't grow up in one of those churches. But if you grew up in a Calvinist church, you for sure knew that. Uh, there is a, a point of doctrine in Calvinist theology that has a, a lot of merit to it. And the doctrine is the total depravity of man. How many of you have ever heard that kind of a phrase before? The total depravity of man. <laughs> you, did you grow up on that? No, just know it well. Just know it well. Mm-hmm. So here's the, here is the notion behind the doctrine. The, and, and I had somebody come up to me after last service and ask me some questions about this. They said, I grew up in a Calvinist church, and when you put that up there, unable to, I just heard, like, total depravity of man. And then she asked, if man's totally depraved, then, then I've never been able to reconcile or figure out how it is that people can do good things if they're totally depraved. And so the notion is the total depravity of man means that man is incapable of doing anything nice, good, benevolent, uh, charitable, uh, uh, magnanimous, sacrificial, and that's just not true. We see it all the time. People, people giving gifts of, of, chi- of charity, people um, uh, committing acts of kindness and selfishness and sacrifice, magnanimity. I always just try these words, and I'm not quite sure how if I'm going to pronounce them well, but I just go for it. I look first, and I leap first and leap later. But thank goodness we've got real-time fact-checkers. It's actually 2 Corinthians 10, 5. Ah. Uh, Keeps me honest, I appreciate it. When's the last time you ever got to real time fact check your pastor, like from the stage? Actually, I love it. I love it. Yeah, I love it. But people do. They, they are capable of, and many of you, all of you in here at different times, have, have done 
charitable things, uh, uh, sacrificial things. And so how do you reconcile this idea of total depravity of man? The doctrine, the Calvinist doctrine of the total depravity of man means that man is totally depraved and incapable of doing, saying, thinking anything that would result in his earning right standing with God. We can dig wells, we can build orphanages, we can build hospitals, great, wonderful things. But if we're doing those things in the name of trying to earn right standing with God, God's like, ba-boo, nope, no good. So that's what the, the doctrine, the total depravity of man is talking about. Not that he's totally depraved, but that he is incapable of redeeming himself. Then we talk about sonship. Jesus purchased our redemption with his blood. Now why did he have to use blood? Because the Bible says in the book of Leviticus that the life of any living thing is in the blood. In our DNA, deep within us, not just our psyche, but literally within our DNA is, is corruption. When Adam sinned, the Bible tells us that sin entered into the whole world through Adam's bloodline. And, and our bloodline, no matter how good we are, our bloodline, our whole being is corrupt. Just a little bit of yeast works its way through the whole batch of dough. Imagine trying to live a life that's pleasing and honoring to God, but yet you're contaminated with this issue of sin. Our human thinking is, well, I better go and do a lot of good stuff to outweigh and make up for the little bit of bad stuff. And uh, uh, Dave Neville has, has heard this illustration, um, and you, you'll recognize it. My mentor has said it before. Imagine trying to make an omelet for somebody and you crack the first egg in there and it's a it's a nice egg and you you're sizzling it up then you crack the second egg in there and it's good you go to crack the third egg in there and whoa, it just reeks of sulfur the egg has gone bad and you mix it in that omelet and you're like well better add a, another good egg to to make up for that bad egg you crack the fourth good egg in there you mix that all up and you make the omelet and then I serve it to you. Would you eat that omelet? No. no. But here's what we do as humans. We think, surely these three good eggs will outweigh that one bad egg. Surely my good works can make up for my bad works. And we have a tendency to compare ourselves to others. Well, I mean, maybe I got a few bad eggs. And you use that really high-pitched, fast <laughs> voice. I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean I'm not perfect. But then you always do this, but mm -hmm. that guy, I'm way better off than that guy. I mean, that guy, and we always tend to look down the line when we compare ourselves. Do you notice that? But it was Jesus who paid for our sins because his blood was not contaminated with the sin of mankind. And he purchased our redemption with his blood. <laughs> how about how about one one more new one and then let's see what happens. Why did you just 
<laughs> because that was just the review. <laughs> I'm sorry, but not really. <clears throat> Let's look at our position. Under slavery to the law, we were under the cruel guardianship of the law. What do I mean by cruel? Have you ever been tempted to be naughty? You rationalize it, you justify it, you make excuses for it. I've earned this. I'll make up for it, or this will be the last, whatever. You do it, you say it, and then once it's all said and done, you're like, that was awful. Maybe I'm the only one. Maybe I'm the only one in here. When I say under the cruel guardianship, because here's what that dirty devil does. Our dear friend, and, and, our, and uh, um, she was on our, on our leadership team in Tulsa, the church we were serving at. She would always call him that dirty devil. So he'll entice you. He'll cajole you. He'll put some nice bait on the hook. Come on, come on, come on. Come on, once you bite the hook, yank, he sets the hook, now he's got you. Then, after you've committed that sin, then he turns around and says, look at you. Look what you did. You are the worst. So he tricks us into doing it, we do it, and then he hammers us for having done it. How could you? You said that you were never going to do that again. And now, look at you. Ooh, I hate that guy. Mm -hmm. Right? Anybody in here ever felt that? Like, come on, come on, come on. It's going to be okay. It's not going to be that many. Okay, bike, honk. Then you do it and you feel awful about it. And then that same voice just dog piles on you for what a loser. You were the, wait, you're calling me a loser? You were the one that tricked me into this. But somehow that doesn't work. He just hammered. How many of you have ever been in that cycle before? All of us. That's why he is cruel. The cruel guardianship of the law. The enemy uses the law God's law, and according to the book of James, you can write this verse down as we were talking about with our team. Amanda brought up this verse, and it's so good. Just jot this verse down in your notes. James chapter 1, verse 25. But if you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free, and if you do what it says, bless you, and don't forget what you heard, then God will bless you for doing it. Wait a minute. You've been talking about the law, how the law is, is cruel, but James 1.25 says, but if you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free, wait a minute. So two points about that verse. God, when he gave mankind the law, it was good. Our ability to keep the law is impossible and it exposes or reveals our sinfulness. Mm -hmm. And then the devil, the enemy, uses God's law to trip us up, 
to get us outside of the law and then to hammer us for having broken God's law. Under the cruel guardianship of the law. Think of God's law like an x-ray machine. When you go to the doctor, oh, my arm hurts. Well, let's get an x-ray. The x-ray doesn't heal your arm. X-ray is binary. It just says, yep, it's broken. Or, nope, not broken. There's other things that need to happen. So that's, that's think of the law like an x-ray machine. You're either in right standing with God or you're out. The law has no capacity for redemption for us. That's the tragedy of, of workspace religions and the tragedy of our dear native olive branch Jewish friends and family. They, they're still working and striving by trying to follow the law to earn that right standing with God. It happens today. It happened in Jesus' day. Those people were known as Pharisees. Strict adherence to the law as if that would earn them their right standing. Compared with this idea of sonship, that when we receive the forgiveness that Jesus offers by his sacrifice on the cross, we enter into sonship and we, have, we are in the family with full rights and privileges and I also included responsibilities. So the difference between being under the cruel guardianship of the law is that when we get adopted, when we ask Jesus to adopt us, we come into the family with full rights and privileges and also responsibilities. So we're covering some new territory here. Um, I can get to... I can get to the condition of heart cry, because um, it's very simple. But uh, how about any thoughts, comments, or questions? Maybe Bible verses bubbling up into you, or or an analogy, or an example of this idea of position. One position is being under the cruel guardianship of the law. The other position, being adopted as sons, is we're in God's family. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Will you hand that mic off? This way? <laughs> yeah, tell it. What's coming to your mind, Mom? Um, well, Joy's mom. <laughs> well, I'm good for with Mom. <laughs> um, in Ephesians 2, um, the first few verses about where we were, and he knew exactly where we were, and that didn't bother him at all. Mm-hmm. And then in the second part, and he, he explicitly describes where we were in 3, in case we didn't know it. Mm. And, or understand it. But in four, the two words um, that I love is, but God. Mm. But God. Wasn't me, but God. Mm. So rich is he in mercy. Is it all right if I read this? Mm. Time to read? Okay. Mm. <laughs> okay. Come on. Uh, because of, and in order to satisfy the great and wonderful and intense love which he loved us, or you. Put your name there. I always like to put my name in the Bible. 
even when Judy was dead in sin, mm -hmm. shortcomings, God made her alive together in fellowship and in union with Christ, the anointed one. He gave us the very life of Christ himself, the same new life with which he quickened him, for it is by grace, as we know, his favor and mercy, which you did not deserve, this is the Amplified, that you are saved, delivered <clears throat> from judgment. There's no more condemnation. Oops. In the page. I'm not used to this kind. I'm more of a paper person. <laughs> <laughs> and made partakers, as he was saying, of Christ's salvation. And he raised us up together with him and made us sit down together in him. <sighs> could, could I borrow somebody's pen? Because I want to write that. Yeah, you can grab me a pen. Oh, thank you, sir. Okay. I just, I want to write... I want to write that down and meditate it, meditate on it on my own. What was it? Ephesians. Through the maps. Oh, so good. Here you go, sir. Ah, oh, so good. Ah, oh, so good. Last one. It's really simple. What was our heart cry? Slavery under the law. The heart cry, no matter how we try to camouflage it or disguise it, we know deep down, somehow, someway, that we are lost without Christ. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes 3.11, for God has placed eternity in the human heart. We try to fill that God-shaped void with money, possessions, materialism, accomplishments, adventure, the mountains, dead things hanging on our wall, uh, motorcycle trips, whatever. Some of those things aren't necessarily bad in of themselves. And when in the right place, they're wonderful. But when we're trying to fill that God-shaped hole, they have no capacity to do it. We're lost. We're lost and we're crying out. You know what SETI is? It, uh, it's an acronym for maybe search for extraterrestrial life. You know, and, and, and scientists are looking into the cosmos, trying to find some evidence or signs of other intelligent life out there in the universe. We're looking, we're searching for something because we all instinctively and intuitively know that we're lost. The human heart cry, no matter how many Grammys, how many Academy Awards, how many cars we have in our heated garage on, on multiple levels with elevators, no matter how glamorous our Instagram stories are, we're lost. But when we get saved, here's our heart cry. And you can hear it all throughout the, the Hebrew-speaking modern world and ancient world. The simple Hebrew word, Abba. Abba. He's holy, he's reverent. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. He's, he is the master of... He is the creator and master of the entire universe. He is transcendent. He is imminent. 
He is omnipotent. But yet, there is a nearness and a closeness that he allows us to have with him so that our heart cry can be, can change from being lost to calling him Abba. In the Hebrew world today, babies, anywhere Hebrew is spoken, babies are taught when they see daddy, we call him daddy, but they teach him, this is Abba, this is Abba. And when you look at your mom, that's Ima, Ima and Abba. God gives, God allows us to call him Abba. That's the kind of relationship and closeness that he has with us and it becomes our heart cry.